0: Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen.
1: The title of the book, Evolution and the Future of Mankind, and the author, Dr. Lawrence Wood. And Lawrence joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Lawrence. Hello, how are we doing? Well, good to have you with us, and right from the start, I want everyone to know that you have a PhD in physics and you've been a physicist most of your life and also uh, very involved in computer uh, design or networking programming? That's correct. Okay. That's correct. All right, but of course here we are going into a firestorm because anytime <laughs> you mention the word evolution, it seems to create that kind of activity and I want to read a couple of things that you have written about your book. You say Few subjects provoke as much emotional intensity as evolution. Numerous polls have disclosed that only 20% of the American population accepts evolution as the correct explanation of human origins. Many of the other 80% consider evolution a form of blasphemy. So... This is a subject that you have great uh, passion about. Uh, Your book is to convince us of the reality of evolution, and it's quite a comprehensive book. Uh, Why do this, Lawrence? Why jump into this uh, firestorm?
2: Well, uh, Steve, as the next paragraph in uh, my book says, the attitude, the opposition, to evolution is a form of a is somewhat tragic because evolution provides the answers to what is going to happen to, our, <clears throat> to the human race. It's, um, evolution is the cause of uh, our population growth, the excessive population growth, which is deemed by many people to, to be the greatest threat to the human race. Now, people talk about this uh, population growth and all, but uh, not many people, in fact, I've seen no one who has a good explanation. Well, in my research, since I got my PhD, I've looked into the question of why things are the way they are. How did our understanding of ourselves and our surroundings develop? And, without going into a large detail, I ended up realizing that something that evolution has added to our uh, repertoire of behavioral characteristics is the root cause. There are two characteristics that drive the, uh, the propensity towards the growth of population. And we can't do anything about those, for reasons which I explain in my book. And so... What my objective is to convince people, A, that evolution has truly occurred, and B, that we must take action. And the only action that can be taken is by the human brain. We, have, we are the first animals to recognize that, uh, this propensity for growth. All other animals have gone through cycles of population growth and population boom. The human race has never had a really serious downturn. But if we continue to grow like we are now, we will. We're going to run out of resources, and, it, and we're going over a cliff. And so we have to take action and, in particular, implement population control methods, which will bring our population to something near zero population growth. Now, there are some countries doing that. But most countries aren't. And this book is aimed at the people who aren't uh, t- taking the proper measures to reduce the uh, the population growth. So once I discovered this, I felt I just had to sit down and write about it because it's so important. And I realize it's super controversial and I'll, <laughs> I'll raise some kind of firestorm. But I really want to get people talking, thinking. I hope that uh, this interview and others will get people to at least read the book because the first half of the book talks about what this evolution thing is all about and why it's true, and then the second half of the book explains the consequences of these behavioral modifications, which I'm not going to tell you what they are unless you're going to have to read the book, but they're serious, and when you see it, it'll be obvious
1: population right now is what six billion plus is that
2: about Six and a
1: half billion, and by yeah. the mid-century what are, what's the forecast
2: well there are two or three i've seen nine billion i've seen ten billion and perhaps more i've got a book called feeding the ten billion and there's been a couple of articles about how we're going to feed the additional three billion and they're all laced with boy, boy, it's going to be tough. <laughs> and right. it is. And there are some people who worry that we have actually reached the carrying capacity of this planet. You know, and there, On the other hand, there are those who say technology will save us, and there are others who think uh, that some religious being will save us. But the only thing that's going to save us is our, is our cortex, which uh, has been bequeathed to us by evolution, and it would show that too many children is not good. Some countries, as I say, have already discovered that.
1: At the beginning of the book, you focus on, quote-unquote, prior to 1897. Why did you focus so much on prior to
2: 1897? Well, the the 1800s was a, a time of great foment, in the scientific community. Uh, At the end of the 1700s, uh, the the ideas that are incorporated in the book of Genesis or very early findings by scientists uh, were still in vogue. Uh, The issue of the sun going around the earth, how old is the earth, how did everything uh, come to being uh, wasn't too well known. Finally, about mid-1800s, a number of people recognized that evolution had actually occurred, and one fellow by the name of Charles Darwin had the nerve to actually write a book about it. And you talk about a firestorm, that book (laughs) really set things going. And then by the time before 1897, uh, we really didn't know how matter was made up. There were so many different questions being answered so but by, by the end of the 1900s, of the 1800s, uh, we were really starting to understand, A, how old the Earth is. Uh, we started to learn quite a bit about how life had evolved and, and, and the like. And then in the 1900s, a lot of the pieces started to fall together. For example, it wasn't until 19 in the mid-1930s that we understood how old the sun was because we didn't know what caused the sun to burn. And in the 30s, we discovered something called nuclear fusion, which is the the engine that drives the sun, and and so forth. So these phases of learning are all spelled out in the book. One of them happens to be starting there in 1897. That was with Discovery of Radioactivity. You also
1: talk about uh, three origin explanations. Uh, of course, we hear about uh, what your book is uh, featured on evolution. We also hear about the creationism from the Bible. What's the third one?
2: The third one is intelligent design. Now, if you look at the way the, uh, our understanding has developed, that's the key to understanding where these three different origin explanations came from. Uh, what we call creationism is a lineal descendant of a belief system called animism. Animism was first discovered by a anthropologist named Tyler in the mid-1800s. Animism has a history of thousands of years old. Uh, I can trace animism back 100,000 years, and it was the it was the belief system that humans first devised to explain what they could see with their naked eye. Uh, they saw the sun going around the earth, and it didn't seem to be very far away, and nothing seemed to be changing very much. Uh, the, uh, and so they arrived at a, at a conclusion that the earth is at the center of a very small universe that revolved about it, and that uh, is not very old, and that it was created by, inhabited by, and controlled by, unseen by all powerful spirits or gods. That's called animism, it's still alive and well today. Now animism morphed into polytheism, which morphed into monotheism. So there's a very direct chain that you can see through the historical and through the uh, uh, various other ways of knowing what has happened on earth. And that's how you get to creationism. So creationism is a is a long history of un, what I claim are unfound beliefs, but understandable. You can understand why people might have believed this. Now, intelligent design was devised in the mid-1800s because people said, life is too complex to have happened by itself. We have to have an intelligent designer. And so the People who believe in intelligent design probably feel creation is too strong because there's so much evidence that the Earth is more than 10,000 years old. It's very, very difficult for many people to support that belief. But the belief that there is a supreme being, a a a designer, is very, very strong. And so that's where this intelligent design came from. Uh, The two people who are most instrumental was a a Michael Bayhe and a William Dembski. There was a very famous trial in Dover, Pennsylvania, where intelligent design was basically put on trial and found wanting. So it's another, besides intelligent design, there is a design process that works in the development of life and everything else, and it's called something very simple as trial and error, you know, We produce children, and at the risk of offending parents, I have some children, they're they're like trials. Now, some are very good, some are mediocre, some are... They vary all over the lot. And if you run trial and error, have millions and millions and millions of generations of, of life, you will get all the variability that you see. It doesn't require any intelligent designer the system, the the system that uh, the process that causes evolution to occur, which I describe in my book, has all the necessary variability built into it to produce all the variability. So that we don't all this complexity just falls out. So that's what intelligent design is about. And then, of course, we have evolution.
1: We have uh, a couple minutes, well, about three minutes left, Lawrence. Uh, why do some people just have such a tough time, really difficult time accepting evolution?
2: Well, I, the, the answer to that one is, unfortunately, pretty simple. Uh, I say unfortunately because, uh, well, there are two educational systems in our country. Uh, we have the parents and the church. And then we have the secular public schools. Now, all children, children's first teachers, are their parents and the church. Now, if your parents are strong believers in creationism, you go to church and you study Genesis, and you learn all about what the uh, idea that God created the earth in a few days and all this sort of thing. And if you're inculcated with that strongly, in your first few years, when you finally get to public school, you're sitting in this classroom, and there's a stranger standing up there saying that everything your parents and church said was wrong. And people have a many people have a very difficult time dealing with that. In fact, I was on a hike two weeks ago with a physician, and she admitted she's a creationist. Well, why? Well, my father was a Methodist minister, and my grandfather was a theologian. Well, obviously, this woman had been inculcated all during her early years in creationism. And so people who people who start out that way have a very difficult time breaking away. On the other hand, I've got a couple of uh, bios in my book, a fellow by the name of Stephen Joffrey, for example, who started out like that, but when he finally got out and saw... For himself, he realized that creationism doesn't work. It doesn't fit. It doesn't. He saw many, many things that it could not explain. And in his own words, his life crashed on him because, and he became a pariah in his family. That's another reason people have a very really difficult time because they uh, will be ostracized by their friends. And of course, there's great comfort in the belief that you will have a a life. It, after death, and people cling to that with great comfort. And so there's number, these are the reasons why people have a very difficult time uh, accepting evolution. But for those who have finally made it over, uh, well, they, they look back and they say, well, how come?
1: The title of the book, Evolution and the Future of Mankind, the author is Lawrence Wood. Lawrence, tell us how to get your book.
2: Well, you can get the book through uh, iUniverse. Or you can go to Amazon.com and if you merely uh, enter Evolution and the Future of Mankind you'll go directly to uh, Amazon.com or you can visit my website I have a website and the title is Evolution and the Future of Mankind uh, and there's some information about the book on the website and also a link to Amazon.com and uh, I don't wait to uh, leave out any of the other bookstores, uh, book, you can get it at barnesandnoble.com. And there's also uh, an e-version. So if you are one of the people who are adopting Kindle, then you can get a, uh e-version of the book for your Kindle.
1: Lawrence, we appreciate you being on iUniverse Radio. Thank you. Thank you, sir. been a pleasure. I hope that uh, we have some success here. That was Dr. Lawrence Wood. He is the author of his book, Evolution and the Future of Mankind.
0: You're listening to iUniverse Radio.
3: We'll be back right after these messages. Get ready for the not so Soccer Bomb, Tuesday afternoons at 1 Eastern, Noon Central, on Toginat with Jill Hickey. You name it, from politics to pop culture to Jill's search for the perfect bronzer and chicken salad, the Not-So-Soccer Mom will weigh in on it all. The sentence, I have no opinion about that, is one that Jill has never uttered. In the early 90s, Jill finally decided to put her thoughts, opinions, mom advice, love of pop culture, hummus, and Starbucks, working out, cosmetic shopping, and politics into an actual website, and thus NotSoSoccerMom.com was born. problems and solutions capitalizing on your ideas and efforts that's all a part of changing the world one invention at a time with rick rowe thursday evenings at 6 5 central on Toginet.com. rick will be sharing stories of innovation invention inspiration and overcoming obstacles with guests who have been there done that and are doing that Rick will be asking the right questions, helping you identify the real problems, and show you how to act on your ideas by increasing consumer confidence, and more importantly, increasing your confidence to act on your ideas. For even more information, go to ThinkTech, that's T-E-K, globally.com. Then join us as Rick and his guest teach us how to develop new ideas and create new products, new businesses, new jobs. And together, let's get our economy growing again. It's changing the world one invention at a time. With author and inventor, Rick Rowe. Thursday evenings at 6, 5 Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to
0: iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Galactic Tempest.
1: And the author is Joseph Swab, and Joseph joins us now on iUniverse Radio, brought to you by Trafford Publishing. Hello, Joseph. Hi. Well, this is a science fiction novel, and you say it focuses on a geopolitical struggle between two superpowers from the point of view of the commanders who lead their military. So you're taking us way into the future. With a few twists, and then uh, then others who write and produce science fiction. Why write this book? What what captivated your interest to create a science fiction novel?
4: Well, I tried to focus more from the perspective of how this would be put forth, like in a strategic standpoint, that the societies, like how would they interact with each other? How would they how would they go about? Um, starting their economic and, and political dominance over an area and then how would they come into conflict with each other using different strategies, tactics and weapons. So basically it's 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 kinda of like supposed to be a strategic sort of thing. It's almost like um, almost like if you're reading a strategy book like um, von klotzwitz 's on war, maybe Sun Tzu's with commentary.
1: And you like being the general.
4: Well I think that if you try to put it from the perspective of a frontline soldier like a lot of Books do, you sort of only get his point of view. It's kind of impossible for him to know how the battle overall is going, or, or or how anything beyond his surroundings are occurring. So I put it in the perspective of the generals because they basically know, you know, what tactics they're using, um, how the battle is going, you know, um, what their forces are doing, and and um, what it means in the overall scope of things, like whether or not the victory actually will. Become something they can use, or, or whether or not you know a defeat can be turned around.
1: Let's talk about the two civilizations that are in conflict. We have the Reds and the elitists uh, Let's tell us about the Reds.
2: Well, the
4: Reds are basically like the type of society you might expect from, say, Imperial Rome. They basically focus on on, uh, on honor and the code of conduct and um, sacred religious rites and that sort of thing. And they sort of come in conflict with the society, the elitists, which are a lot like a, a modern Day society where they focus on technology and wealth and politics and that sort of thing. And they they're almost like polar opposites. And it's one of the reasons they eventually come up, become, you know, into conflict.
1: Now, we have an important... Invention that comes along that really creates, uh, I guess, the a lot of intrigue in the story. Uh, you call it space-time distortion, manipulation, travel, or STM. Tell us about STM.
4: Okay. Well, I was trying to go off of Einstein's theory that nothing within normal physics can um, can surpass the speed of light. And i um, not sure if you know this or not, but if you can't surpass the speed of light, you really can't travel that far at all. So I thought of the theory that what if the fabric of space-time could be distorted to the point that you could basically envelop a ship or something in a field of its own and then bypass those restrictions temporarily kind of disappearing and then reappearing in a different spot um i didn't go as far to explain it too far because i kind of wanted to leave it open to the imagination but basically it would be the sort of thing you would expect sort of thing that maybe a black hole would generate with an immense field of gravity
3: the
1: reds are human or humanoid what is the difference between human Um, or humanoid
4: well, basically, uh, they're supposed to be human-like, but they're not actually humans. It, it, it's so that the readers have something to relate to.
1: Okay, and then the uh, elitists—you have their reptile kind of uh, creatures.
4: Yeah, and that's sort of to evoke the, the the image of kind of like a sinister, you know, calculating um, kind of adversarial bad guy. Although the elitists and the allies in 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 large are, are not technically the bad guys, really, the story doesn't have any clear-cut good or bad side. It's really about these shades of gray. That, you know, there are some members of the Alliance that are doing it for political or economic reasons that are plotting behind the scenes, but that in large part, they're mostly just citizens and and soldiers and generals who are just doing their job. And by and large, the Reds, although they might seem honorable and and to their code, they also seem to like fighting and kind of push into the war a little further than they should and tend to be pretty relentless when it comes down to actual combat.
1: Are you trying to make some political statement about today's world?
4: No, none whatsoever. Um, I'm a big fan of history. I try to relate it as far as possible to societies I've seen in history cultures in the past um, you know the sort of conflicts that parallel and basically other periods of history but not really to today's point of view I don't want to get it to be politically charged or anything I don't want people to think that the alliance is supposed to represent one thing and the red is supposed to represent another thing in t- current political times I want them to try to see them as they are and maybe be able to draw parallels to historical things but nothing in present day
1: now, the Alliance is with the elitists, the reptile elitists, right?
4: Yeah, basically, the Reds are primarily one race, whereas the Alliance are a coalition of races. They're kind of like the super side. And uh, they sort of work as the the Alliance basically trades governing power and technology for for admission into this Kind of the UN style super state where the more people they bring on, the more powerful they get, but they have to go to less advanced races in order to convince them to join. And as it gathers, you know, societies, it becomes more powerful, unlike the Reds, which focus mostly on strengthening themselves.
1: Is there a main character?
4: There are kind of two, and they're, they're each generals on either side of the conflict. Um, both of them are kind of they're new, they don't really know how the war functions or, or how the conflict works and they rise to the ranks and kind of learn what it means to be a general and a commander and have to deal with things like loss, and casualties and eventually, you know, towards the end they become the two forerunners of the conflict
1: So the conflict is over power is over wealth is over uh, technology what, what's the conflict over?
4: Well, basically, the two supersites have no idea the other exists until they meet in a contested solar system that I refer to as a neutral zone. And since neither one of them knows what the other side is capable of, they at first come to a neutrality stance. They try to avoid contact with each other at all possible cost. What ends up happening, though, is because they take a neutral stance towards each other, enemies of both sides end up inhabiting the area um, anarchists, criminals revolutionaries, the types that would oppose either government and eventually this third coalition of kind of radicals and, and revolutionaries end up tricking the two into fighting by bombing a station and then that's how the conflict begins but it sort of um, it accelerates to the point where once it starts can't be stopped even though it becomes clear that they were set up
1: So does the story revolve around uh, battles, uh, clashes, or is it uh, more of a uh, character kind of development where we really learn about these two generals and how they're trying to outwit each other?
4: Well, it mostly focuses on what the generals are ordering to do, how this happens on the battlefield, what's the reaction, and how sometimes it works out in their favor or sometimes blows up in their face. Usually it revolves around what the actual forces on the front line are doing, and it typically goes back to the general um, every once in a while to see, you know, what they're thinking, what they're doing, what they're how they're reacting to these things, and then eventually, you know, what they learn from it.
1: Do you have any uh, very creative kinds of weaponry in, in the uh, story that these the sci-fi fleets use?
4: Oh, my relatives' joke that it reminded them of uh, World War II in space. <laughs> um, I did try to introduce some futuristic weaponry here and there, um, but like any good story, you, you don't throw all the technological weaponry out there right in front. You kind of introduce it piece by piece, so the people kind of get used to it. Like At first, it's the type of stuff you'd expect, and then eventually it becomes more and more complicated. And I sort of explain in the background that as these things are implemented, it becomes obvious that either there's going to be more of this sort of thing or that it's being counteracted, so it's kind of being phased out.
1: Well, Joseph, uh, you're at the uh, real old age of 24. <laughs> <laughs> and here you are writing this very complex story. Uh, how did this all begin?
4: My friend inspired me during a creative writing project we had. Um, we we had to come up with, like, this monster, like, 10-page paper that had to be something completely generated by us. And he said, you know what, I have an idea. I'm going to take one of these sandbox, you know, random scenario-type games, and I'm going to pretend that I'm a character leading the forces in the game. Um, so, so basically... The games are kind of random, you know. They don't go off historical precedent or, or any modern day conflict. They just give you random forces in a random scenario, and, and you see how it plays out. It can go any, any way. And so he basically had the idea that, that he would he would play one of these random games, and then he would take the idea from this from this randomly generated scenario and pretend that he was the general leading his forces in the battle, and that there was some you know, maniacal sovereign behind him who started all this and that he rises through the ranks and eventually overthrows that person and realizes that it's his goal to defeat the enemy and unite the world. And <laughs> And it was really hilarious how, how well he did it. And uh, from that, I kind of got the idea that it would be kind of a neat story to write. And so, Eventually, it sort of mirrored what he did, but as I wrote it and as I drafted it and re- revised it, it sort of became a completely different story on its own.
1: Well, you have, a, obviously, a high expectations because of Star Wars and Star Trek, but just going to read this. Uh, this is, takes us right there. You write, The galaxy was vast, so it would take many, many years before the two expanding empires would meet. They would finally collide centuries later at a contested star system filled with many habitable planets, rich in resources. It is here that that events would begin to shape the future of the galaxy. I like that. I like that.
4: Well, the trick is, you know, cinematics. So you got to make it sound dramatic, yeah. but not trite.
1: <laughs> well, you have a flair for it, and that's obviously what sci-fi requires, because you've got to step oh, yeah. out of the box, don't you? You got to, you just got to create uh, environments and situations and characters that uh, st- stretch our mind.
4: Definitely, definitely. The the whole point of sci-fi is. Since since you kind of have a futuristic tablet to work with, you kind of have to generate your own societies, your own worlds, your, your own environments, your own conflicts, and it gives you a lot of flexibility because you can introduce any technology you need to, to help the story move forward, and it it won't seem it won't seem out of place. Um, although you know the the bar definitely was set very high by Star Trek and Star Wars and such, I tried to take a different approach that. It's it's about the the politics and 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 the uh, and the regional implications that these two sides have on their on the area on the surrounding areas and on their societies, and um, and it's really about the strategies and tactics employed against each other, and how their different armies you know either one up each other or or, or really counteract each other. So I, I hope that. People will see something unique in my work and won't just think, oh, he's copying this or always oh, copying that.
1: Is this the beginning of some series, of sci-fi series or a number of books?
4: Well, actually, originally I wrote it much, much longer than that, but I wanted to see how people would react to, like, collect kind of a small and start installment, like the beginning, and see, like, if people liked it, you know, I might do more, but if people didn't like it, I'd write something else.
1: Do you have a website?
4: Facebook. Um, Joseph Schwab at Facebook. I, I've only set it up for like maybe two and a half weeks, so i okay. not sure exactly how you find it. I, it's got a picture of the cover somewhere on the wall. So,
1: All right, Joseph. Well, it's also obviously available through Trafford Publishing and other online retailers. You can order it from there. Galactic Tempest is the name of the book. Joseph, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. That was Joseph Swab. He is the author of his book, Galactic Tempest.
0: You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages.
5: Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix.
3: Girlfriended is on TuggyNet.
0: To iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, "The Pagans Are
1: Revolting," and the author is S.D. Lake. And Stephen joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Stephen. Hi. How you doing? Well, before we get into the details uh, for everyone's overview, I'm going to read a few things you have written about your book, to give a general introduction. You say this, This book is a commentary on this present culture of death and hedonistic unrestraint based on the concept of naturalistic secularism and godless nature worship, which advocates for a worldview which has no room for Christianity with its paradigm. Well, that is a mouthful. But at the same time, it just zeroes in on your view that... We talk about Christianity, but there's a lot of gray areas here, aren't there? That's what a lot of people are going down this road. Is that what you're saying? They're in the shadows and not the pure gospel? Well, just
5: yeah, that's my uh, understanding as I look at the culture, that they're just they're trying to throw off any kind of uh, moral restraints based in, quote, uh, other people's ideas of what, what morals are and what people should be doing.
1: You also say, I want the reader to come to understand that the culture war is now. What do you mean by the culture war?
5: Well, the uh, this has been going on for a very long time. I mean, they threw prayer out in the 60s out of the public schools, and uh, the educational system now is really, they are mind-benders. They are trying to shape a, the next generation into a secular society where there is no room for... Uh, quote-unquote religious values uh, where everything um, pretty much is what whatever you believe in your heart that's good enough for you and it's very subjective and everybody has their own idea about what is good or what is bad and nobody can really judge the other person's view and that battle is now because this next generation that's coming up right from the get-go from the public school system that's how they're trained to think and the uh teachings of any generation will be the laws of the next generation as these young people graduate and become our politicians
1: and you also give a clarion call i would say you say now is the time to stand up and be counted and not to wait because once a generation of god haters is raised up then morality will be in the garbage and a culture of paganism will prevail until the country falls apart
5: Wow, you say it, and uh, that really that shakes my heart. Even as I wrote it, it shook me because uh, that that is the uh, direction that the country's taken now. And the older generation—I say older—I mean people who uh, probably are baby boomers—they're uh, the ones now that uh, need to stand up and cast a vote for uh, for values and morality based in the Christian tradition, which is what the country was basically founded on our Constitution. And that's being thrown out the window along with the Christian values.
1: And you talk about the family now. How does the family play a part in all of this?
5: Well, I have grandchildren and uh, stepchildren, and as the you know, children may not always do what you say, but they'll certainly do what you do. And uh, if you don't practice any kind of a uh, religious kind of attitude within your home, uh, then they're not going to have anything to to base their their morality and they're going to be valuable by the, by the educational system. They're, there's going to be nothing, no foundation for them to stand on. They're not going to recognize right from wrong. I mean, I believe that the parents should set the example for the children and said, you "Now, not everybody goes to church, but if you go to church, take your children with you. You know, if you read your Bible, then read it in front of your children. If you pray, pray with your door open, pray with your children. Uh, if you believe in your Christianity, then you should practice it, and you should practice it with your children because they're going to be raising their children, and they need something that's going to set an example other than the secular
1: culture. So what? My <laughs> so you talk about Christianity and Jesus Christ uh, must be demonized and discredited. Uh, is is that totally happened, or are we still on that path? At uh, what degree has this occurred?
5: No, it has not occurred uh, as of yet, in Uh No, they're trying to, and uh, when I say they, I mean people that are not Christians, people who don't believe, uh, they, they believe that uh, Christ and Christianity is nothing more than a simple fantasy, that uh, God didn't create man, man created God, and uh, they think that that's just... Uh, a mechanism that uh, human race has leaned on, and that there's really no room for it anymore. They, they don't believe in the reality of uh, Christ and the reality of the Christian religion as being a uh, a, a true depiction of a um, God's son who came to Earth. They think that's more of uh, like a fantasy, like a fairy tale, and uh, and that's how they view it, and they, that's how they actually despise it in that manner. That people that of faith. They really believe must have uh, low intellect, or just uh, are just so easily led, like sheep, because uh, they they can't imagine how anybody could possibly believe that. And secularists, um, they have their own views, and now they may believe in spacemen, but they don't believe in God. So that's kind of interesting, in my opinion.
1: So this humanistic view of the world is all about the individual, then? It's all the answers are within the individual? Uh, is that, I mean, how do you describe that?
5: Well, yeah, that, all the answers of being in the individual, that's uh, that's kind of like um, Eastern religion where uh, you are God and uh, you have all the answers within you. I think uh, some of the present-day um, fad cults or fad religions kind of, uh, expout that same kind of thinking that you are everything you need within yourself, you are all you need, and uh, I believe that that 's not that 's a fallacy because uh, in christianity we 're told to lose ourselves and to find our worth and our our um, acceptance in god uh, it 's hedonistic or narcissistic to think that we 're just so wonderfully great. In our own right, that's uh, people, they get, they get their egos up and they go astray and they just think that everything that they think, do, or want to do is correct. And uh, one of the things that Socrates said that he thought was rather humorous was that people who are wise in one field seem to think that they have all the answers in every field. So some people who are maybe would be very successful as actors somehow think they're really tremendous philosophers, which is not the case.
1: Well that seems to uh, sum up much of those in washington d c today as well. <laughs> well pretty much yeah now you also say uh ever any reference to God in the faith of the founding fathers of the Constitution must be rewritten or minimized as to having influenced the writing of the Constitution, so that is a prevailing attitude as well
5: well yeah they they uh well I keep saying they but i got the, the the powers that be that are secularist uh, that don't want any God in the public arena, they would like to, to have you think that most of the founding fathers were deists, uh, which is really not a Christian. A deist is not a Christian. A deist is a person that may say that there, yes, is a God, and he started the universe, but then he, he left it, that he is no longer involved in it, he is no longer involved in the lives of people, he's no longer to be prayed to, that he is hands-off now on the human condition. And they would like you to think that the Founding Fathers were all deists, but they weren't uh, followers of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, which is, if you read the early writings in this country, and not just the writing in the Constitution, but of the signers of the Constitutions and their personal correspondence, uh, they're all Christians. They all believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And they, they thanked God for this country and... The blessings on this country, but the way it is in the educational system now is that they want to put Jesus Christ on a shelf with every other possible philosophy, and just put them right up there, and they're all equal, and nobody's better than anybody else, and you can, you can worship a tree, or you can worship Jesus Christ, it really makes no difference, and they'd really prefer you worship, worship nothing other than Mother Earth and the power of nature and evolution, which is what caused all this to come about in their minds.
1: You've been involved uh, in a prison fellowship ministry since uh, 1993, and and uh, you've gotten, uh, you're a mental health counselor. Uh, how did that experience uh, mold your thinking about uh, writing this book?
5: Well, it, it really did have a great influence on it because... Uh, I see the people that I came to counsel with uh, within the prison system through the chaplaincy, which is a Christian, a Christian focus, a Christian worldview. Uh, almost to a man, none of them had any foundation in a belief system about anything. They were sec- they were secularists. They thought to believe in a god or that you had any kind of a responsibility to uh, to live your life in a certain manner was nonsense. And that's how they kind of went their own ways. And uh, the, most of the people that I had counseled with personally uh, were somehow always hooked up in some kind of a self-serving substance abuse or drugs or just illicit sex or just uh, a devil-may-care attitude about life, uh, you know, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. They had no focus on the future and no hope for the future. And that's most of the people that I have run across.
1: Your book is broken down into three sections. Uh, give us kind of an overview of the different sections.
5: Well, the first, I didn't title the sections. Uh, the, the, the first section is more, I, I like to call it the soapbox section, <laughs> because that's kind of like where... Uh, Kind of put a lot of the uh, things into focus on what's going on within our our governmenting our governmental system, our school system, the educational system, and then uh, section two is more of a. Well, I, do, I would hesitate to put a psychology uh, tag onto that, but it really is about how people learn and come to think the way they think. That uh, some people really don't have any; they don't take control of their own thoughts. They just kind of like absorb anything that comes in and they really don't screen anything through any kind of a a lens to check it out to see if it's if it's going to be something that's going to be healthy for them and they just kind of absorb everything and before you know it they don't know what to believe they believe everything and there's that old saying you know if you don't stand for something you'll fall for anything and that's kind of what section two is about uh, section three was more um more about relationships about um significant uh people in your life, children, your wife, your family, and uh, ways to relate to them and not always putting yourself first in a self-gratifying manner, but uh, to having to, uh, keep, well, Jesus said it's better to serve. Uh, to, he came as a servant. It's better to give than receive. And it kind of focuses on uh, those types of relationships uh, And in, in my own life, kind of how what I've come to find really is rewarding in in my relationship with my wife is to put her needs before mine. And I find that to be very fulfilling in my life, and I just want to share that with my reader.
1: Well, a real key, as you point out in Section 2, the real key is we have to educate the young, don't we? We have to get them back to the basics of, of the foundations of this country uh, upon the constitution about upon our belief in god or there probably isn't any hope for the future
5: well no i, I believe that uh, you're correct in that assumption there that uh, that that was pretty much what I uh, had come to realize is that if the next generations are left without God in their lives uh, then it's going to be uh it's going to be total secularism and god is going to be pushed into a corner and anybody who believes in him is going to have no voice within the public arena because they're going to be and uh, they're going to be viewed as being intolerant because uh, they have uh, values that they say something is the right w- something is not the right way to live and people are going to say, well, that's intolerant. You can't tell other people how to live their lives. You have no basis for that. But in reality, there is a basis. It's, it's in the law of our land, which is founded on Judeo-Christian values, and there is right and wrong. And that's what needs to be instilled in our children, and they need to know where where that value system came from, and it came from our founding fathers.
1: So as a friend of mine who is running for Congress, who's a pastor, he said this is really spiritual warfare. Oh, yes,
5: yes. And, well, you know, the, <laughs> I don't want to get on a soapbox again, but as I was saying, but, you know, the, our battle is not with flesh and blood. I mean, you look at a person, a person just stands there. It's the person... Within the person, the person, the thought patterns, what they think and what they believe, they're just in this vehicle that's a body. But the spiritual warfare is about the minds of people and what they're going to believe, whether they're going to believe in a God and the values that are put forth in the Judeo-Christian tradition or whether they're going to believe there is no God and you can live your life any way you want to. And that's where the battle is. It is a spiritual battle.
1: The title of the book is "The Pagans Are Revolting." Stephen, tell us how to get your book.
5: Well, we can get it. It's available online at Amazon.com. It's available through iUniverse Publications, uh, and it's also uh, it's going to be available in Borders uh, with their online ordering. It's, um, it's out there. <laughs> it's, uh, there's several different venues to to pick it up.
1: Well, thank you, Stephen. Thanks so much for being on iUniverse Radio.
5: Well, thank you very much for for having me, and I appreciate it.
1: The author is S.D. Lake. The title of the book, The Pagans Are Revolting.
0: iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by Toginet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.